Second Kings chapter nine is where we are tonight. Second Kings chapter nine. And this is a special chapter. Uh, God has been reserving this chapter for those who have been following along in First Kings and Second Kings. And uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, at least uh, 10 or more chapters, and for us, several months. And uh, we have been waiting for when God's word to Elijah and his judgment upon the house of Ahab and Jezebel would take place. And that's what we learn of in 2 Kings chapter 9. Now, it's a little difficult uh, for us to keep track of who's who, but we have learned that uh, God has, in his justice, has uh, anointed, uh, rather told Hazael that he would be king of Aram. And uh, sure enough, Hazael went ahead and killed his master, Ben-Hadad. So the stage is set. So you have Hazael, king of Aram. Uh, He's a pagan, you know, king, but he's a one who's taken over, and uh, then we learn in chapter 9 of how God is going to judge Israel in the north, and uh, some of the challenge for us we learned last week is because Jehoshaphat and his family intermarried with the family and descendants of Ahab and Jezebel, and what happened is because they're all in this together, they start naming one another's sons after each other. So it's a hard to keep track of uh, which Jehoram or Joram belongs to Israel, which one belongs to Judah, which Ahaziah belongs to Israel, which Ahaziah belongs to Judah. So what you have to do as you read along is you have to keep focus not so much on the name, but focus on king of Judah or Israel. So keep track of, are we talking about a guy who's related to Israel or are we talking about a guy who's related to Judah? All right? All right. Let's begin in chapter 9, verse 1. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand. Go to Ramoth Gilead And when you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting, and he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. He arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel." You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, 
And I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Now Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know very well the man and his talk. They said, It is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus he said to me, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Haziel, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram. So Jehu said, if this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu come, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send him to meet them, and let him say, is it peace? So a horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported, the messenger came to them, but he did not return. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. The watchman reported, He came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite, For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. 
When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Iblim, but he fled to Megiddo and died there. Then his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, This is Jezebel. Amen. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we come and we pray, uh, you have our attention, and we pray that you would teach us tonight, and I pray not only for those who are old, but for those who are young this evening, boys and girls and young adults, I pray that this passage would make an impact on all of us, that we might know you, our God, fear you, love you, and serve you, and take courage and have good comfort in evil days. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a lot going on, and I read the entire chapter, but you, you have to, because that is how the Spirit uh, presents it. It's a, it's a momentous uh, scene and a coming together, a converging of the judgment of God upon the household of Ahab and Jezebel, And we've learned that, unfortunately, down south in Judah, because they have intermarried with the house of Jezebel, the house of Ahab, the house of Judah is increasingly similar to the house of Israel. Athaliah is a daughter of Ahab, and she is um, married to uh, Joram and uh, Rather, let me get this right. Yeah, well, Jehoram down in the south, and then Ahaziah is uh, her, let me get this right, her son. Am I getting that right? Anyways, you have this this intermingling of the two households. And um, Ahaziah, after all, there had been an Ahaziah, king of Israel in the north previously. We learned about him. He's already dead. This is Ahaziah, king of Judah down the south, and 
why is he named Ahaziah? He's named after a man in the household of Jezebel. So you may get lost a little bit with the names, but the idea is that Judah, where Jehoshaphat had been godly king, is increasingly out of this pragmatic connection with the house of Israel in the north is compromising and is following in the ways of Israel and God has had enough and it's time for judgment to come. And what is amazing is we may have forgotten. Here it is on a Sunday evening and we've just heard about all these guys and their names and some violence and some rather unseemly descriptions, and we're wondering, what's all this about? But for that, we need to turn back all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19. And we've already noted this, but do you remember right now we're, we're in the section where Elisha is the prophet, but do you remember that guy named Elijah? You remember him? And uh, remember that time when on uh, Mount Carmel and there was fire from heaven and and King Ahab was there, and they slew the prophets of Baal, and, and Elijah thought this was going to be great, but Jezebel threatened him, and, and Elijah was discouraged, and he ran all that way down to Mount Horeb, and there God met him at Mount Horeb, and God uh, ministered to Elijah in his discouragement. I mean, just the evil of Jezebel and Ahab was overwhelming. It, it seemed impossible. I mean, if, if there couldn't be a turnaround in Israel, if fire fell from heaven and consumed not only the sacrifice and all the water, but the very stones, and if God leading a execution on hundreds of prophets of Baal and prophetesses of Asherah, if that didn't lead the nation to repentance and wasn't sufficient to bring Jezebel down, then what possible hope was it? There, there was an absolute discouragement, and it seemed like evil was going to win. I mean, it really did. Uh, there, there was very little hope, but God said to Elijah all the way back in 1 Kings 19, verse 17, I'm sorry, let's begin in verse 15. The Lord said to Elijah, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Now, in actuality, uh, he anointed Elisha to be prophet after him. And it was through Elisha's ministry that Hazael and Jehu were appointed. Um, but apparently in God's plan, that was, was what he intended all along. Uh, Elisha's ministry really was one extension of, of Elijah's ministry. And so, and then here, God says, here's the judgment that will come about. I mean, this is going to happen years later. Elisha hasn't even been appointed prophet yet. This is going to happen many, many years later. At this point, you have no idea who this Haziel fellow is, this Jehu. You don't even character, you don't even idea. They might be little boys at this point, for all we know. God says, it shall come about, verse 17, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. So we've been waiting God promised that. When, when, when's that going to happen? 
Jezebel's living and she's thriving in her witchcraft and in her worship of the Asherahs and the Baals. She's slaughtering the prophets, the preachers of the word of God. She's extending her influence not into the, only the corners of Israel in the north, but now she's got uh, her influence down through her, uh, her relatives now that are married into the household of Judah in the south. I mean, she's just triumphing. Nobody can touch Jezebel. She is apparently victorious. She has triumphed, and she has gotten away with untold evil. She and Ahab, her weak husband, who followed her in fear. Well, here we are all the way later in 2 Kings chapter 9. We may have forgotten, but God has not forgotten. And that's our first point tonight in verses 1 to 13. God remembers the sins against his people. God remembers the sins against his people. We've lost this today. We, we, uh, and we've been learning this in this study of 2 Kings and 1 Kings. We've been learning about God. And we've learned that God is gracious and he is compassionate and he is merciful. But we are learning about God, truths about God that are largely neglected and absolutely passed over today in the evangelical church. We're not learning about this. And no wonder there's little fear of God. No wonder there's little concern for displeasing God because men and women don't know the God they're dealing with. And the God we worship tonight and this day is a God who takes note of those who sin against the innocent and against the righteous. Jezebel had slaughtered the prophets. She had, we learn in this passage, not only had Ahab and Jezebel, remember that guy Naboth, and and he had a nice field, and Ahab was pouting, Jezebel, oh, oh dearie, what's wrong? And, and he said, well, I want the field of the, the vineyard of, of Naboth, and, and he won't give it to me. And the reason Naboth wouldn't give it to him is because the law of God said that once you received an inheritance, you were to hold on to it. That wasn't a matter of real estate. And, and we think of real estate in terms of, you know, holding it for a time, and then maybe, maybe our family will want it, but likely it will be sold. For them, it was, a, it was a reality of faithfulness to God to hold on the land to the land that God had apportioned to the family. It was part of their living out the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. And so Naboth had, not, had, had refused to sell his very, apparently very... Um, successful and fertile field to Ahab and Ahab didn't like it he pouted it and so Jezebel basically said this is no problem what's um remember she raised up a few false witnesses against Naboth and we learn here in chapter 9 all these years later not only did they take out Naboth but they exterminated all his sons this righteous man and his family were exterminated by Jezebel and Ahab that happened many many years ago People have moved on. They've forgotten. I mean, it's, it's been Ahab and Jezebel's property and then their, their children's property. It's been part of the king of Israel's holdings for some time now. I mean, that's, that's blood under the bridge. Not in God's mind. Notice in verse 7, 
God says after this fellow uh, Jehu is, is anointed, but the reason for it is you shall strike the house of Ahab your master. Why? That I, this is the Lord, Yahweh speaking, may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. God hasn't forgotten. He hasn't forgotten anything. He remembers all of it, down to the detail. One of the frightful wonderful and glorious attributes of God is God is not only omnipresent but he is present in each moment of time right so think about that I mean he's the creator of time he's not bound by time but God is all who he is in all places at all times which is a very frightening reality that we tend we understand we're moving through time we are time-bound creatures But for God, those sins against his people and those crimes are to him present because he is I am. So we may have moved on. People may think that years have passed, hundreds of years have passed. For God, these crimes are like being done right in his face because he is all that he is in all times and all places. And so he has not forgotten He can't. And so he remembers sins against his people. And that is the reason for him raising up Haziel, the king of Aram. Now, Haziel, the king of Aram, isn't a godly man. Um, These guys aren't godly. God is using these men as tools of his justice. He can do that. And so he's going to use Haziel, the new king of Aram. And now he's going to raise up within in Israel in the north. So we're talking about Israel in the north. And God, the Elisha, verse 1 of chapter 9, sends one of his young men, a servant, to go to this gathering of commanders of the armies of Israel. So you have um, Jehu, who at this point, and he's a son of Ahab and Jezebel, and he is king of Israel in the north, and he's wicked, and just like his mother, and uh, he is um, an evil king. And this, uh, I'm sorry, not Jehu. Uh, I'm getting my guys mixed up. Joram, Joram, sorry. Joram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. Jehu is the one that God anoints to rise up. And Jehu is a commander. So these commanders of the army of Israel have apparently become pretty powerful they have no real love, apparently, for Jezebel or for Ahab, the house of, Ahab, of, of Jezebel and Ahab. And so God sends a prophet, uh, this young man, uh, a servant of the prophet Elijah, and God anoints Jehu, king of Israel. And he's there, his head is all sopping wet with oil, and he walks out to the other guys, and they're like, what's up? Uh, that's a paraphrase, it's not in the text. And at first, he tries to downplay it. Um, He's maybe wondering how they'll respond to it, because if he says he has been anointed king of Israel, that is technically could be taken as treason by some. And he's with the, apparently, Jehu is the commander of the army, but he's with the most significant military commanders and leaders in Israel. And they push him for a response, and they're like, no, no. What's, what's the real deal? Notice how they refer to the, 
the young servant, they referred to him as a mad fellow. That's how ungodly always think of, of messengers of God. But Jehu gives a true report in verse 6. Um, I'm sorry, down in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And apparently these guys had no love for Jezebel, no love for Joram. And so they immediately uh, join in establishing Jehu as king of Israel. So Jehu is going to rise up against his master. He's just a commander of the army of Israel. God is going to send him to take out Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And so you have that scene in the first 13 verses. And the reason is given in verses 7 and 8. And verse 8, God is very specific. I mean, the language there is is rather, um, you know, it's... Even in the, in the Hebrew, it's a little more specific there. God is, is, God is being derisive. He is deriding and, um, the, the household of Ahab and Jezebel. And, and he is going to take them out. Um, do we have a place for this God in our theology? This is going to be a major theme tonight. I, and I know we... We want to, we do, but it's a question we want to ask ourselves. And I will say, as you know from experience, I fear that many nice, well-meaning, Jesus-loving people don't have a place in their theology for this God. Not, Not this aspect of God, which is not good, because God is one. So, God remembers the sin against his people. Secondly, tonight, in verses 14 through 29... He's the God who coordinates justice against the wicked. He's the God who coordinates, I'll say, rich justice against the wicked. I'm emphasizing the coordination there because he's sent uh, through Elisha, a servant, to anoint Jehu to judge Joram, the king of Israel. And now all these details are going to work so that not only is Uh, Joram, king of Israel, going to be judged. Ahaziah, king of Judah, who is is, uh, related to Jezebel's house. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah are going to be judged. But the judgment is going to happen, of all places, verse 21, at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, this is amazing. Let's just walk through it quickly. So Jehu gets up from that... (coughs) excuse me, that gathering. <clears throat> and he starts riding. Uh, he, first of all, makes sure that his fellow soldiers and commanders don't let anyone leave, verse 15. So where they are meeting, um, he wants to make sure, because they've been celebrating that Jehu is now the king of Israel, and they don't want anybody to escape the town or the city where they're meeting to get ahead of them to go to Jezreel and give Joram a heads up. You get the scene here? So Jehu's fellow commanders shut down the city, don't let anybody outside the gates, and then Jehu starts traveling to Jezreel. And the reason he's going to Jezreel, a city in Israel, is because Joram had been wounded by Hazael, king of Aram, 
and he was recuperating and getting nursed for his wounds in the city of Jezreel. So he's already been wounded by Hazael, who God had raised up among the Arameans, and now God is sending Jehu, a commander in Joram's own army, and he's riding. And apparently Jehu was a rough, tough commander. Uh, He was known, apparently, for riding his chariot furiously. Now, I don't know how you drive a chariot, but I'm guessing it's not necessarily a graceful thing, no matter how you do it. I mean, you have horses, and you have a big, clunky piece of of military equipment that was like a tank in those days. But apparently, this Jehu, commander of the army of Israel, could drive his chariot like nobody else. And everybody knew it. And so he leaves And he goes, verse 16, in the chariot and goes to Jezreel to to take out Joram. And lo and behold, in verse 16, we learn Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Huh. Wow. Now, again, just for a little background, go back over to chapter 8, verse 26. Who's this Ahaziah character? So he's king of Judah right at this point. He was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab done, because he was a son-in-law to the house of Ahab. Get the picture? So Jehu, I'm sorry, Joram, king of Israel, Um, Ahaziah is king of Judah in the south, but he's also connected to Ahab and Jezebel. And God's going to judge them all. And you begin to see the coordination. God's already wounded Joram through Ahaziel. And now we find that out of this political allegiance and maintaining their relationship, um, Ahaziah has come to Jezreel to check in on Joram to see how he's doing and to reaffirm their alliance and so forth. But of all times for Ahaziah to be there, it's when Jehu is going there to take out Joram. And Jehu doesn't know that Ahaziah, king of Judah, is going to be there. But God does. This is no accident. This is no coincidence. This is divine providential coordination for rich justice to be executed upon the household of Ahab and Jezebel. So he rides towards Jezreel and there's a watchman in Jezreel and and, uh, he has apparently some pretty good eyes. You should if you're a watchman, I guess. And uh, he says, there's somebody, there's a little troop, you know, gathering this dust flying up there and word sent to King of Joram and they send out one horseman and two horsemen to find out. And Jehu is apparently a very imposing figure. These guys are soldiers who are traveling out. They know who Jehu is and they can tell by his face and by his demeanor that they pretty much have one or two options. 
Um, get behind Jehu and support him or die. It's uh, pretty, pretty simple. And so these two guys who are servants of the king of Israel decide suddenly they're, they're pretty happy to be part of this coup. And so they, they travel and they suddenly go to Jehu's side, um, doubtless for personal reasons. It is telling there's no love lost on the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, remember that about the wicked. When you see the wicked, wicked, influential people rising in various comforts, places around the world, and um, remember that they're, they're likely not loved by even those who are close to them. Um, they're likely hated by everybody. The only reason they have loyal people is because of fear and because of buying them out. But anyhow, um, so Jehu is going towards, and the watchman reports uh, finally that, boy, not only one or two guys have been lost, but now this guy is, is driving like a madman. Um, his driving, verse 20, is like Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So Joram, the king, even though he's wounded, says, get ready. And they made his chariot ready, and he goes out to meet Joram, and, and uh, he asks, is it peace? Uh, he can tell that something's up. And Joram, rather Jehu, gets right to the point. What peace so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? Wow. Uh, Jehu understands that he is going to be the executor of God's justice. And the reality is, you know, he's not, you know, we think, oh, he's calling Jezebel a witch. No, Jezebel really did engage in witchcraft. Uh, it was part of her thinking that she was powerful. And um, she led the people in Baal worship and Asherah worship. She worshiped any demon, any kind of vile thing, and she oversaw it all. She was like the high priestess of apostate religion in Israel. And so uh, Joram sees this, flies. Uh, Jehu takes him out with a, a arrow as he's flying, hits him right in back and goes right through his heart. Jehu has enough to uh, apparently, um, rather, verse 24, it takes him out instantly and he sinks in his chariot. And then verse 25, Jehu, as he's going by, sees Joram in the chariot, says, cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. It just so happens that this son of Ahab and Jezebel is uh, murdered, is, is uh, killed in right alongside the field of Naboth. Coincidence? No. Rich justice coordinated by God. Wow. Amazing. I mean, of all the places they could have met, of all the places where he could have been killed by the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And the reason, verse 26, God had apparently said through one of the prophets that God had seen the blood of Naboth and his sons. So if you have any pity, that's a little picture of just countless murders that Ahab and Jezebel and their sons carried out. Get a knock on the door in your house in the middle of the night and you and your wife are hauled out and all your little children and you're slaughtered for what reason? 
because the king, the wicked king, wants your field. So no pity lost, no pity should be spent, rather, on Joram. He's not a victim. He is not an innocent man. He, this is the justice of God. Jehu may have pulled the bow, maybe have launched the arrow, but the whole judgment is coordinated by a righteous, just God who takes account of sins and wickedness committed against his innocent people. God is the avenger of the innocent. And we need to remember this. Finally and thirdly tonight, continuing in the same theme, we learn of the God who destroys the wicked. He not only coordinates that justice, but there's a, there's a destruction. And often in the, in the Bible, that destruction is, is a form of justice in which God not only renders, takes the person's life, but there is a, there is a destruction of their name, of their reputation. There's a humiliation. There is a dismantling. And with Jezebel, this destruction, this dismantling, is, and this humiliation is down to the level of her being eaten by dogs. Jezebel's still alive, and she catches wind through her servants of what's going on, and she knows by this point that her son Joram is dead. And uh, Ahaziah, king of Judah, you see verse 27, he also was shot, and he fled to Megiddo and died. So God, in one moment, rendered judgment upon the wicked king of Israel and the wicked king of Judah. Wow, Uh, not a problem for God to take men out that he has a problem with. And so Jezebel hears of this, and she, verse 30, gets herself together. And, and, you know, we can speculate why, but she is so vile, so wicked, so full of herself that if she's going to go down, she's going to go down looking her best. Um, it may be that in her vanity she thinks somehow that if she puts herself together she can somehow impress Jehu and save her life. But, but she, is, she is defiant in her wickedness. That, that's what you should see in this. There's no contrition. There is no fear. She is a satanically inspired individual and she defies God defies the judgment of God, and she is so arrogant, so full of herself, that she even paints her eyes and adorns her head in preparation for her judgment. She is unrepentant to the very last. No pity for Jezebel. And so Jehu enters the gate, and she mockingly says to, from up above in the tower, up, up high, she asks Jehu, is it well? And she calls him your master's murderer. She tries one last ridicule or belittling. You get an idea again of her arrogance, of her vileness, of her power. She's defiant and tries to belittle Jehu. Jehu doesn't even uh, give her the decency of acknowledging her. Verse 32, you see that? He doesn't respond. He doesn't even respond. And and we should see there a little bit of God's response. God's, God's not bound to 
give dignity to those who are worthy of judgment, like Jezebel. Righteousness, righteous judgment. So he just asks up, lifts his face up, top of the window, asks who's on my side. And again, Jezebel uh, didn't have anybody who loved her. Um, you say that's sad. No, it's not sad. There's, there was nothing to love in her. Um, no, there was nothing redeeming about her. She had disfigured, so disfigured the image of God. She had been such a tool of Satan, such a vile murderer of God's people that those around her hated her. And her power by this point has waned. The house of Ahab and Jezebel, she's getting older. She doesn't hold the sway and the fear she used to. So two or three officials, verse 32, uh, figure, well, uh, I guess Jezebel's day's over. So they look down to Jehu, and then he says, verse 33, throw her down. So they literally take her, and doubtless she's screaming, cursing as she falls, and her blood, I mean, she's, it's apparently a pretty good height. And her blood is sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. This is fulfillment of God's judgment. He's not going to let her die in honor. This isn't gore for the sake of gore like our culture. This is, this is justice. She had sprinkled the blood of countless righteous innocents. And God in justice, in preparation for hell, sprinkles and spatters her blood on the wall and it'll in the ground and she is trampled underfoot by the horse of maybe the chariot of Jehu as a sign of derision and disgust and judgment and verse 34 he just leaves her in the street they go off and he is king of Israel now and there is a feast and those who are there welcome him apparently and after he comes in eats and drinks he says send somebody to go and bury Jezebel, but when they go, uh, they don't find much about her left. All they find is her skull and her hands and her feet's feet, and that's the only part of her that the dogs wouldn't eat. Um, and again, we're, we're rightly a little bit disgusted by this, um, but if we knew what she did, if we had in our mind the faces of the righteous men, the preachers that she slaughtered, if we had in our mind the boys and girls of righteous mothers and fathers that she had harmed, we would think sweet justice. Um, verse 37, I am not trying to be crass when I point to the reality that God's justice makes it so that Jezebel literally becomes dog dung on the field. This woman so high and mighty becomes (laughs) dung upon the face of the earth. God takes note of the wicked. And the purpose was that God made it so that, in contrast to her entire reign, I mean, she reigned for a long time, 
Everybody feared her. Everybody had to bow to her. Everybody had to follow her wishes. She seemed to have full sway. She was an antichrist figure. It seemed that she was unstoppable, unassailable, and she would have the last word. She did not. In fact, God humbled her to the place that literally you couldn't go anywhere and say, here lies the late Queen Jezebel. Rather, you have to say she's, she's over there somewhere and maybe a few miles over there, wherever the dogs have gone. I want to close by reading what I thought was a very helpful comment at the close of um, Dale Ralph Davis's chapter on this. He says, in commenting on this last part, he says, the demise of the wicked should be the joy of the righteous. Let me say that again. The demise of the wicked should be the joy of the righteous. It may sound crude to put it that way, he says, but that's only because the church has stopped living in the world of the Bible, Psalm 83, and has been sucking up the bland milk of tolerance from the breasts of an anemic culture for too far long. There is no biblical spine in our theology. I think he's right. Admittedly, sometimes we're a bit shocked by the biblical attitude in these members in these matters. Davis says, I recall a time when our boys were young and I would read them Bible stories before bedtime. After the story, we would pray. One evening, the story was about Elijah and Jezebel, and it told about how Jezebel was flipped out of the window to her death. I put aside the little book, and we went to prayer. Our oldest boy, so you have, you have the scene that in the bedroom, and Dale Ralph Davis is you know, reading the Bible to his boys, their little boys, and he's putting them to bed at night. He said, Our oldest boy usually tried to reflect what we'd read in our story in his prayer, and it was so this night. I remember being somewhat, I'm sorry, Luke, his son, Luke prayed, quote, Dear God, thank you for letting Jezebel die, end quote. He says, I remember being somewhat jolted by the straightforward gratitude, but thankfully said nothing. Later, I realized that my son was exactly on target. It is always good news for the saints when their oppressors are judged and removed. That's the word of 2 Kings chapter 9. Joy to the church. The queen is dead. I think he's spot on. And some of us may be troubled. We think, If God is a God of vengeance, and what about forgiveness? And after all, aren't we sinners? Yes, friends. Yes, we are sinners. But if you diminish the nature of God's judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel, and you're repulsed by it, and you somehow think that is below God, what do you think Christ was bearing in his body on the cross? That is God's holy aversion and hatred of sin. He is utterly opposed to it. And his justice is exact and it is perfect and it is good and it is rich and it is glorious. But we dare not diminish 
this aspect of our God. He is the sin-avenging God. And for those who are vile and arrogant and do not repent, there is exacting justice coming. But for those who confess their sins and confess the ugliness of their sin and turn in humility and faith, God extends mercy, and he wants to. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he is a God of justice. I love this about God. I've said this to you many times, church family, but I don't know how you go to bed at night and sleep in a world of such abuse and oppression and lies and deceit and untold kind of acts of vileness and wickedness against the innocent unless you believe that there isn't a true avenger who remembers, who will coordinate his justice and execute his justice in such a way that his people redeemed by his grace will praise him for it. We praise God for his judgment upon Jezebel. And may he judge all those wicked oppressors of this world who cruelly abuse his people. Let's pray. God, we love you for all of your attributes, your holiness, your justice, your grace. And we can only imagine what it would have been like to live in the days of Jezebel. And we pray that you would clear our thinking in this area and that we would love you for your judgment as those, yes, who are recipients of grace, not worthy of your grace, who are worthy of judgment ourselves. But we understand that in this world there are those who, who lift a, a high hand against you and, and carry out untold cruelties upon the innocent. And we take comfort tonight that you will not let these things pass by unaccounted for. We fear you, we tremble, but we love you, we worship you, and bless you now in Christ's name. Amen.